This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Sarah Beth Durst discusses her new book, The Stone Girl's Story. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot looks at publishing numbers and parodies. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD Bookscan. There's been a big shakeup in fiction this week. We have nine new books on Whoa. our list of 20. Uh, I'm going to hit the highlights. Right, I don't think good. I'm going to be able to talk about them all too sure. much. But uh, let's let's see how quickly uh, we can go through this. Number one is Accidental Heroes by Danielle Steele. We don't have a review of this. Mm-hmm. It's a thriller about uh, flight to San Francisco. And uh, that goes very badly awry. Someone is planning something terrible. And uh, the passengers, the crew, and people on the ground try to avert a disaster. So that sounds pretty intense. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, uh-huh. uh, right below that, The Punishment She Deserves by Elizabeth George. We gave this a starred review, so that it's stunning. It's the 20th book in the Thomas Lindley series uh, about a detective inspector running things at New Scotland Yard in London mm-hmm. uh, while his partner and his boss are investigating allegations of police malfeasance. And we said, exquisitely rendered characters and a powerful sense of place enhance the meticulously crafted mystery, and it satisfies as a standalone while furthering the series arc. So people who've been interested in the series may find this a good place to pick it up and get into it. Just moving down the list a little bit, number five, The Bishop's Pawn by Steve Barry, the 13th thriller featuring U.S. government operative Cotton Malone. We say this is an effective conspiracy yarn centered on Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. Uh, and that Barry makes Malone accessible to newcomers by presenting his numerous rookie mistakes as a field mm. operative, but the anticlimactic reveal may disappoint some readers. Down number eight, A Day in the Life of Marlon Bundo. Uh, this is the parody by last week tonight with John Oliver, and we'll be talking about that with Jim Milliot mm-hmm. a little bit later in the show. But uh, right now, it's sufficient to note that uh, number eight on the fiction bestseller list is pretty high for a picture book. Yeah. And uh, moving down at number 10, Covert Game by Christine Fan, the 14th book in the Ghostwalkers series. We don't have a review of this. Um, It's really one of those mid-series books that only the series fans are Mm -hmm. going to want to pick up, but there are plenty of those, and uh, this is her paranormal series uh, about a series of uh, experiments that create the creatures called ghost walkers and uh, they're trying to uh, race against the clock against people who want to undermine the security of the United States. So uh, paranormal thriller. Great. At number 11, The Temptation of Forgiveness by Donna Leon. Uh, we say this is thought-provoking. It's the 27th Commissario Guido Brunetti novel. Am I saying this right, Mark? You are. Fantastic. You're, you're our expert. And uh, in which he helps 
a university colleague of his wife who fears that her teenage son has fallen prey to drug dealers. And uh, we say that amid the procedural aspects of the case, vivid descriptions of Venice and interludes with Brunetti's pesky superior, Leon offers intelligent reflections on the fallout that can harm both innocent and guilty in the quest for justice. Uh, A mystery with some depth to it. Number 14, Alternate Side by Anna Quindlin. We say this is a provocative novel, a New York City drama of fractured marriages and uncomfortable class distinctions. Uh, And it's about a a posh couple who get embroiled in a scandal when uh, one of their rich white lawyer neighbors hits a local Latino handyman with a golf club for blocking a parking lot entrance. So class and race all intersect um, in this book. And we say that Quindlin's novel is an exceptional depiction of complex characters, particularly their weaknesses and uncertainties, and the intricacies of close relationships. And uh, at number 15, Duel to the Death, an Ali Reynolds novel by J.A. Jantz, the 13th book in the series. We thought this was pretty uneven. It uh, has a science fictional element involving an artificial intelligence who switches her allegiance from her creator, who is a serial killer, to uh, one of the protagonists of the stories, um, who is in second in command at a cybersecurity company. Uh, we say that the AI's intriguing human-like behavior compensates only in part for a plot that never generates much suspense. And finally, at number 18, Every Note Played by Lisa Genova. Um, we say that she captivates with the plainful but unflinching story of the demise of a celebrated concert pianist uh, following him and his ex-wife, once also a pianist, who have just undergone an acrimonious divorce after a long poisoned marriage. And we say that the detail Genova infuses into each narrator's thought process, observations, and love for music makes them distinct, but also reveals their compatibility. And that's what we've got <laughs> on the fiction list. Uh, it has been a slightly less exciting time over in nonfiction. Yes, uh, we only have a couple titles. One is called at number one, Secret Empires, How the American Political Class Hides Corruption and Enriches Family and Friends by Peter Schweitzer. And he's written a couple of other books before, one about the Clinton cash in which he revealed the Clinton's massive money machine. According to his publicity material here, he explains how a new corruption has taken hold involving larger sums of money than ever before. So this is how that political class stays in power uh, and wealthy. So at number five, we have Pretty Mess by Erica Jane. Erica Jane is the alter ego of Erica Girardi, who's the uh, singer uh, and model on The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. This is her first memoir. She talks about her life on and off the show. And then we have at uh, number seven, there is more When the World Says You Can't, God Says You Can by Brian Houston. He's the global senior pastor of Hillsong Church. And here uh, he talks about how with God's power, uh, one can believe and achieve a life that exceeds every earthly expectation. And then going down a little bit further... We have at number 11, Genius Foods, Become Smarter, Happier, and More Productive While Protecting Your Brain for Life by Max Lugavere. Uh And here uh, he, he talks about the critical link between your brain and the food you eat and change the way your brain ages by what you eat. So that's what we have at number 12, and that's what we got. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Sarah Beth Durst tells us about her fairy tale of a girl carved from living stone. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Apricot Irving. I'm the author of The Gospel of Trees, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. 
I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Sarah Beth Durst on the line. Her new book is The Stone Girl's Story. Sarah, I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be talking with you guys. So this is a middle grade fantasy, um, meaning for readers in the 10 to 13 bracket. Is that about how that works? I would say like 8 to 12, Mm -hmm. you know, or anybody that loves fantasy, really. So in this fantasy, readers are immersed in the world of a girl named Micah, uh, who has lived on a mountain since as long as she can remember. She's carved out of stone by her flesh and blood father. So set this scene for us, this um, this beautiful world. Yeah, Micah, she's a girl made of living stone. She is forever 12 years old, and she's outlasted the father that carved her. Um, and he brought her to life by carving marks on her stone body that tell her story. And now the marks are beginning to fade from her and her stone friends, and she has to venture out of her mountain and go down into the valley, which she has never done, to try to find a stonemason that can, can re-carve their stories and, and extend their lives. So who are her friends? You just mentioned her friends, these other stone uh, children figures? They're not children. They're, well, they're rabbits, and there's a turtle, and there are bunnies, and later on she meets a stone dragon. I really like things that talk. (laughs) In fact, I think all books can be improved by the addition of either a talking dragon or a talking cat. So I have many things that talk in this book. They were a lot of fun to write. She searches for the secrets to her father's past um, and ends up you know, entering this whole new world. Tell us a little bit about her journey. Yeah, well, it's, it was inspired a little bit by Wizard of Oz, that feeling of going someplace new and bringing your heart with you and finding what home is. So she leaves, the, she's in this idyllic mountaintop home that was carved by her stonemason father, and she ventures down into this valley that is filled with people made of flesh and blood, which she has never met before. It's kind of fascinated by. It's very much, it's not a Pinocchio story. She doesn't want to be flesh and blood. She thinks they're a little, you know, squishy with parts that fall off all the time, and she's not sure how she feels about that. She'd rather be stone. She goes into this world, and she sees there's all sorts of other stone creatures like her, and she comes to the city. And that's where she has her adventures with trying to find a stonemason and discovering that things are not quite all what they seem to be. And stories are very important to this. You said that her father carved her story on her. Is this a sort of anticipation of what he wanted her story to be or the story of how he came to create her? And then she becomes a storyteller. Yeah. Yeah, this is it's very much a story about stories. I mean, I love stories. I really feel that they're as essential to life as air and water and food. Stories are how we understand the world. They're how we process life. They're how we define ourselves. So this book is is very much all about who tells your story, who shapes who you are. We're, We're shaped by the stories in the past. We're shaped by what we've experienced, and we're shaped by the stories we tell ourselves about our future and about who we can be. And in Mako's case, in the case of these other stone creatures, it's the stonemason who is defining who they are. And through the story, Mako needs to learn to tell her own story and to take the reins as a storyteller herself. So it's just really a story about a girl becoming a writer, which is what I wanted to be my entire life. So it's very, it's a very special story to me. It's 
really meant a lot to me writing it, and I loved every second of hanging out with Meka and her friends and exploring her world. So, so before uh, uh, Meka became a writer, t- tell us about her life with the other stone creatures up above the city. Tell us about that life there. That was so much fun to write. So she has, she and her stone friends, their concept of time is, is somewhat different from ours because they're essentially immortal until their markings fade. So one day kind of blends into another. They tell each other stories all the time. They have some, some living creatures, some chickens and goats and so forth that they take care of. So they spend their days doing that and playing and being together and being happy and being out in the sun. Um, as a writer, it was such a challenge to write Meka's stories because she's made of stone. So she doesn't smell anything. She doesn't taste. She doesn't sleep. And I discovered as I was writing that one thing that I tend to do in my writing is I have a lot of butterflies in the stomach and I feel things in the gut of the characters and she does not have a gut. So <laughs> that was a change stylistically and it made her a lot of fun to write. It's how does she someone who is made of stone experience the world. Now, what does she feel when the sun shines on her? What does she do during the night when the darkness stretches out in front of her and it's just her, her friends, and the stars until dawn comes back again? So it was a really fun challenge, and, and I miss her. I always have this moment of sadness when I finish a book that I have to say goodbye to these characters that I have lived with. Um, but the best part of a book coming out is other people get to live there now, too. And I love that part of it. It makes the whole thing feel like it's coming full circle. My story is going into the minds of people I've never met and becoming part of their story. In a lot of fantasy stories, the protagonist is like the one and only. And I could understand making make a you know, the one and only stone girl. But instead, you've given her this wonderful mixed world, this, this integrated world of stone and flesh side by side. Was that a, a very deliberate decision? It was. It was definitely a deliberate decision. I love Chosen One stories. I'm I'm still waiting for my letter to Hogwarts. And I remember being absolutely crushed when I was turned 11 and Merriman Lyon didn't come and say, you're one of the old ones, now go seek the signs. You know. So I do love Chosen Ones, but I also love Unchosen One stories where it's the ordinary person that needs to go out and do something extraordinary. Um, I do that with... Make and Stone Girl story, and also in my adult fiction, my epic fantasy, The Queens of Ranthia, has a character that is an unchosen one. I'm fascinated by that trope of finding something strong inside yourself. That's actually one of the reasons why I love fantasy literature, why I love reading it and writing it, is that that sense when you when you close a fantasy book that you feel stronger than you were before and that the world feels more magical and more full of wonder than it was before. So I want to talk about the stonemason. Who is the stonemason? Uh, her father, is this a kind of deity or is this a kind of just an average person with, with great skill? Oh no, they're, they're average people with great skill. Um, I don't really have any, this book doesn't have any wizards or, or, um, or deities from above. The stonemasons, are skilled artisans. They are storytellers themselves, and they've perfected their art in carving these. 
creatures. So, and there's a variety of skills. There's a bunch of stonemasons, and some of them are very good and able to carve something as gorgeous as Meka or Kisonen, who is a stone griffin that you meet later. Um, and some are more crude workhorses that are out, just out to plow the field, and they're not very well defined, and they just have the one story attached that they do this one task. So there's there's great variety in terms of the skill level of these stonemasons um, and how detailed their story is. Meka's father happens to be, he was, one of the best. He was a master stone stonemason, um, and Meka was really his masterpiece. And when the stone carvings begin to fade, is that simply that they're weathered away or is it something mm-hmm. to do with the with the magic ebbing once the person who created it is gone no it's it's the actual carvings beginning to fade away through just the weathering of time and they just they begin to slow the book opens with turtle who's been one of her companions he's just walked very slowly out to where he has a view over the valley and he wanted to make sure that he stopped where he would have a view forever oh. and that's where he stopped um and that's when Meka realizes that this is happening to all of them, and eventually they will all slow and they will all stop. That sounds like a thing that maybe a lot of kids in that 8 to 12 age bracket are grappling with, that, that we all slow, that we all stop. Right. You know, when, you're, when you're that age, you're starting to think about the future and your life and, and your story and mortality. And there's, there's a fair bit of that. I mean, it's, not, it's not a sad book, but <laughs> it's, it's, I think it's a very real book. Um, one of the things that fantasy does let you do is explore these very real themes in a kind of extreme way and, and look at them in a way that you can't when you're bound by the laws of how our world works and physics and biology and all of that. So you get to explore these, these big ideas, and that makes it a lot of fun. Also, you know, talking stone rabbits, also fun. Right. <laughs> and what's the significance of stone for you? This, what, are, what are the concepts inherent in stone and stone characters? I think, well, okay, the reason I thought of this story is kind of a silly little thing. Um, I'm a really bad gardener. Like, plants see me and they wither. I just, I either overwater and drown them or whatever. But I always try to make a garden. So I have all these, every year I try these flowers, and my husband bought me this little stone rabbit to go in the garden to kind of be like, okay, it's a garden with a little rabbit, and I put the rabbit in, and the weeds completely devoured the thing. I could not (laughs) find it the next year. So I'm like, oh, it hopped away to join its stone friends. And that's where I got the idea. Um, And I find that happens with a lot of my books. I get the idea from one teeny thing, like a little bit of a dream or a little stone rabbit or something small that I stumble across, like, oh, I want to write a book with a winged lion, or I want to do this, and then it will latch itself onto other ideas. I always think of it like each idea is a, is a flame, and when you get enough flames, they join together to form a fire. So the flame for Stone Girl's story was really that little rabbit that I have no idea where it is. I mean, it has to be out there somewhere in my garden, but I have no idea. <laughs> Is there a deeper meaning in uh, Make His Father's magic fading away after he dies? It's really just related to their marks weathering with time. It's not connected. Once, once he created them, they're, they're born. Just like once when you write a story, when you write a book, 
it's separate from you, and it goes on to have a separate life for as long as it lasts and for long, as long as it can live in the minds and imaginations of its readers. It, his creations are very much like that. Once he's carved them, they are their own beings, and they're not tied to him anymore, which is why they can then go on to shape their own stories and become their own selves if they're willing to take that risk of taking control of their own stories. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Sarah Beth Durst, author of The Stone Girl's Story. You mentioned uh, thinking about how this lives in the minds of readers. Do you get to go hang out with your readers? Do you do school visits and readings and bookshop appearances, things like that? I do, and I love doing those things. It just it makes it feel complete to, to meet people and know that your stories are living on inside them. Um, I always think of, of books as these magic things. You know, there are these little rectangles that have the power to transport someone and take them on an adventure and then bring them back again, you know, slightly changed. And so what you're trying to do when you're writing a story is to create that, to create that moment of telepathy, to pull somebody on this adventure and take them on this shared dream. And most of the time, you're just sending it out to strangers. But then you get to go to libraries and bookstores, and I get emails and tweets and all of that from people who have met these characters and brought them into their hearts. And it is the most magical thing to know that my character is now alive inside somebody else's heart. That just, it makes me so happy. And I love going to these book events like, at libraries and so forth and being surrounded by people that love books and stories as much as I do. It just fills me with joy and energy and makes me so very happy. <laughs> and you've been doing this, uh, I think for several books, you've got what, uh, 14 fantasy books, uh, under your belt now. Uh, these are yeah. for readers of all ages. And you also have something called, uh, the queen of sorrow, which is, which is also coming out in May. Tell us about that. Yeah. So, I write fantasy for all ages. I mean, really, the fantasy part is, is my first love. And it depends on what kind of story I'm telling as to what it turns out being. Like Stone Girl's story is middle grade because it's about a 12-year-old girl and you see the world through her eyes. Queen of Sorrow is for adults, um, also appropriate for teens as well. But that one is about older characters who have experienced more in life. It's an epic fantasy. It is book three in the Queens of Ranthea series. Book one was the Queen of Blood. Book two is the Reluctant Queen. And book three is the Queen of Sorrow. And they're set in this world filled with nature spirits. But they're not like sweet, sparkly pastoral sprites. These spirits actually want to kill all humans. And there are only certain women, the queens, who have the power to control them. So in book three, I am wrapping up the trilogy about these queens and their bloodthirsty nature spirits, and it was so much fun to write these these books. Writing epic fantasy and other world fantasies like Stone Girl's Story, it just it feels like walking through a wardrobe into Narnia. 
every day as my job, and I love it so much. <laughs> How do you juggle simultaneously writing books for different audiences? You know, you have this book coming out. You you were writing this, I am assuming, in the middle of writing the Queens of Renthia series. Um, how do you kind of switch in your head from project to project? Well, they, I try to work on one thing at a time because I find that they all have different, slightly different voices and different worlds and different characters. So I don't do it all in the same day, but I do go back and forth, you know, every couple of weeks or every couple of months. I'll switch depending on where it is in, in the whole writing process, switch between worlds. And really writing between different age groups is no different than going between different books of different subgenres. You know, it's just just as much of a mental shift to go from funny contemporary fantasy to epic fantasy as it is for to go from fantasy for kids as fantasy for adults. I think the key is that I really I I really try very hard to see the story and the world through the characters' eyes when I write. I typically write in, in third person, very close point of view, so you're seeing the world through their eyes. And when you're writing through the eyes of a 12-year-old, it's going to come out middle grade because you're seeing it through their eyes. If you're writing through the eyes of, for instance, one of the, ma the main characters in my Queen of Renthia series is Naylin, who is a 40-something mother of two. Um, when you see somebody through her eyes, it's going to come out a very different story. So it's really just a matter of plunking myself into the heads of the characters and you know, choosing which doorway into Narnia am I going to? Am I going to the stone world or am I going to the trees are going to eat me world? Many of your books are about women and girls and their complicated relationships with one another. What draws you to these stories? I think because there's this element of wish fulfillment to writing, um, I think that's part of it is that I'm personally not very brave in real life. I'm a very bad traveler. I was overpacked, that sort of thing. So I'm drawn to these stories because then I get to go and go on these grand adventures. If I walked into some of these worlds that I write about, I would be dead in like five minutes. I'm the kind of person that would not survive a zombie apocalypse and fantasy world. I'd be the fodder. But when I write these stories, I can go inside them and be brave and be strong and save the world and fly on a dragon and meet a stone bird and a stone griffin and do all of these things. And I choose to write about girls and women because I think it's so important to have girls and women out there doing the adventures and saving the day. I also like to write about women and, and girls being strong in different ways. Um, for instance, the, the kids' book that I'm working on that's coming out a year from now called Spark, is it's basically about a, a girl with her lightning dragon. And she's very quiet. And I really didn't want to write about, about a quiet girl learning to be loud. I wanted to write about a quiet girl discovering their strength and her quietness. She is already strong. And that's the kind of character I'm drawn to. Like um, Delena, the main character in Queens of Ranthia, is very much an unchosen one. As, as I was saying before, she's a mediocre student. She just doesn't have the talent, the raw talent that her classmates do. But her magic is her determination. She wants to save her family and her world. Um, and Meka, she's perfectly content to live on this mountaintop. She doesn't want to go off and have adventures and save the day and swing a sword about or whatever. She wants to save her family. She wants a happy life at home. 
And so I love writing the, these various ways for women and girls to be strong and be themselves. I've never heard a writer talk so gushingly about the process of writing and how much fun it is. That's not, really? <laughs> that's, no. the, that's not a thing. Usually people are talking about how they're, they're sweating and, you know, pounding their heads on the keyboard or, or whatever. Is, is this just naturally how it is for you? Or do you have some sort of techniques for keeping it fresh and fun when it starts to be a challenge? I love writing. I absolutely love it. I and mean, I just feel so grateful to be able to do it. It's the only thing I've ever wanted to do with my life, aside from when I wanted to be Wonder Woman when I was five. But that didn't really work out. Um, it doesn't always go well, of course. I, mean, I always have what I call the doomed stage in any story where you get to a certain point and you're convinced that you have no idea how to go forward and you haven't used a verb in like five pages. And who are these characters and what's going on? And ah, I'm doomed. And um, then I just keep writing. <laughs> That's my cure for everything in writing. Okay, it's my cure for everything in life is just to write more. And then you find your way out. And that feeling of finding your way out of the doomed stage is so worth everything that you went through to get there. And to feel something come to life. And then when you get to the end and print it out and see this whole stack of papers, and you're like, I, I made this. And then you get to dive back in and make it better. That's one of the things I love the most is when you, you have the shape of the story and then you get to dive in and see it more clearly and get to know these characters even better and get to crystallize it to, so that you can create that dream in someone else's head as perfectly and clearly and movingly, is that even a word, as possible. To, to create something that can touch somebody else's heart and mind and maybe even change them a little, maybe make them a little happier, a little stronger, a little, give them a little joy, give them a little wonder. Yeah, writing makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> you also wrote Drink, Slay, Love, which is the basis for a recent TV movie. And uh, what was that process like? Uh, did you have a role in that after you had written the book, once it was made for TV? That was so much fun. Uh, so my book, Drinks I Love, is my teen um, vampire and wear unicorn book. It's about a 16-year-old <laughs> vampire who is staked through the heart by a unicorn horn and begins to develop a conscience and is really mad about it because she really enjoys eating people and doesn't want to feel bad for her dinner. And it was a lot of fun to write. I highly recommend writing about an evil character. Very cathartic. You just sort of think what you would never do or say and have them do it. Very fun. So it was a, a couple of years ago, I was, I was contacted by a producer who wanted to do this as um, a TV movie for Lifetime. And I wasn't really involved in the process itself. You know, the, book, the book is the book, and it's separate from the movie. But I did get to kind of watch along as it was developing. And the act of seeing it on TV, I will never forget that. It's just... To have these characters that were in your head now on your TV screen, it's so surreal. I was watching when it first came on, and my hands just started shaking. I'm not a person that shakes very often, but I like looked down and I'm like, what is my hand doing? My husband's like, you're very excited. I'm like, that's it, yes. <laughs> um, and then we got to have this whole party with the vampire theme where we uh, <laughs> we made all this vampire-themed food. And we made brownies and put holes in it and put raspberry syrup to be the bite marks. We took uh, <laughs> the pencil rods and grated them into steaks. It was The whole thing was very fun. 
<laughs> highly recommend the experience if you get a chance to do so. So tell us a little bit about what your writing process is like, your, your everyday experience of writing. I write every day. I find if I take days off, it makes me grumpy. If I don't have writing, writing kind of stabilizes me. It, it makes the world feel okay, if that makes any sense. It makes things feel balanced. So I really try hard to write every day. The other reason I do that is because I find if you keep the momentum going, it really helps. If you sit down and say, now I shall work on my novel, that is completely paralyzing. But if you just sit down and be like, okay, I'm going to write a paragraph and then I got to go do something else, or I've got to write the scene, and you can do that. And if you do that enough times in a row, you have the book. So that's kind of been my, my theory and how I've developed my process. And in the beginning, I used to have all of these myths like, oh, I need this amount of time free, I have no interruptions, oh, I need to be feeling inspired or whatever. And now, I mean, Stone Girl Story is my 15th book, so I've been doing this for a little while. And my process has changed, and I've tried very hard to drop those myths from my process. And I'm like, okay, if I sit down at my desk and start writing, the muse will show up eventually. She'll see me there every day, and like, someday she'll come along, and someday she won't, but more than often, she'll show up and, and join me. And if she doesn't, I always keep a stash of chocolate by my desk. <laughs> is is that muse food? Oh, yes. Raisinets specifically because they've got the raisins inside, so that makes them practically healthy because, you know, fruit. <laughs> and I'm sure that you get a lot of kids coming up to you and saying, I want to be a writer. What What do you tell them? I do. I love that because I look at them and I think, oh, you're me. Um, but when I was, I, I decided I wanted to be a writer when I was 10, and I had never met another writer. I'd never met anyone that had done this. I just didn't know that an ordinary person could do it. I guess I thought that writers you know, were either mythical like a unicorn or just all dead. But, so I try when, when I meet kids like that, I try to tell them, you, know, you can do this. All you need to do is write. That's all you have to do to become a writer. You have to write as much as you can, as often as you can, and that will teach you how to do it. Reading books also helps a lot. <laughs> if you don't like to read, I don't know why you'd want to do this. You need to love stories mm -hmm. and you need to believe in yourself. Try to, everybody's got that little voice inside them that says, oh, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. You have to try to quiet that voice and just be kind to yourself. That's what'll get you through it. Just treat yourself like you would someone that you love and then you can get through it. We've been talking with Sarah Beth Durst, and you can find her book, The Stone Girl's Story, in stores right now. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot talks about publishing numbers and parodies. Stay tuned. Hi, my name is Morgan Jerkins, and I am the author of This Will Be My Undoing, Living at the Intersection of Black, Female, Feminist, and White America, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to tell us all about publishing numbers and parodies. Hello, Jim. Hello, Mark. How are you? Very well, thank you. So, do you want to start with a parody or the publishing number? 
the parodies, okay. I think. All right. Um, it's more entertaining as much as I love numbers. Uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes you have to give the people what they want. Uh, so I think uh, I bet you a good chunk of our audience is uh, familiar with John Oliver and right. his HBO Sunday evening show. Mm-hmm. So on um, March 18th, he uh, unveiled uh, a new book. That's full title is Last Week Tonight with John Oliver Presents a Day in the Life of Marlon Bundo. And it, it's, a, it's a parody of a book, uh, a children's book that uh, Vice President Pence's daughter and um, wife had just released called Marlon Bundo's Day in the Life of the Vice President. Mm. Uh, if people right. uh, remember that episode, uh, Oliver had spent a fair chunk of, uh, of the time... Uh, criticizing various Pence um, stances, including uh, most heavily, and what this uh, the book is uh, geared towards, his LGBTQ stance. Right. Um, as I think we all know where Vice President Pence stands on He's again it. <laughs> he is again it. So anyway, where the publishing story comes in, what he did on this show was announce this book, and it was a surprise, uh, a surprise announcement. Nobody knew it was coming, and... Uh, got a lot of media attention, you know, the day after he announced it. And according to everybody, uh, orders started pouring in. Mm. But to secure secrecy, they had, they had decided with Chronicle, which published the book with HBO, um, to first give first dibs to the, to selling the book to Amazon because mm-hmm. they had felt that that was the best way to ensure the surprise on the show. Even though, as you both know, as review editors, people mm-hmm. sign embargo, NDA yes. releases <laughs> right, every, right. almost every day of the week. All yeah. the time. Yep. So um, there could have been a ways around it. So what happened was Oliver makes his announcement and says something to the effect that go to Amazon to buy it. Um, within a couple of days, they did have some buy buttons for Barnes & Noble and in the, independent bookstores up on the Oliver website. But they didn't actually start shipping uh, books, physical copies, to uh, other outlets besides Amazon until around Thursday. Oh. So this uh, resulted in a you and cry, as you may well imagine, sure. from the independent booksellers right. uh, across across the country. And, and uh, as a result... Um, uh, Chronicle's publisher did actually uh, write it a, an apology uh, last Friday to uh, the heads of the uh, regional trade associations and to some other people, trying to explain their reasoning behind uh, the way they uh, handled the rollout, mm-hmm. saying you know they had talked to them and felt that the best way to do it was as we talked about, you know giving it to Amazon, and then in some kind of what I thought was a bit of stilted language, uh, allocating a percentage of the rest of the print run to other retailers as soon as possible. So I don't know exactly what that was supposed to mean. <laughs> right, right. But as we found out, it meant Thursday. Okay. Um, right. And so, also their first print run was not sufficient. Yes, it, right, right. By like an order of magnitude. <laughs> well, that's where it gets interesting, Rose, because as you know, we have BookScan here. And so they had said uh, the first printing was 40000 mm-hmm. and they were going back to press, scrambling to go back to press, uh, for a total of 400000 mm-hmm. So how many copies do you think it sold last week? 
I'm not going to guess because I did see the numbers earlier, okay. so um, maybe you, Rose will guess. No, we, we peaked. Are you peaked? <laughs> uh, okay. We cheated. <laughs> it sold 7,325. Mm. Uh, so they have a little ways to go to get to their, their 40,000 right. number, and we'll see what happens uh, and how close they can get to the 400. And just for fun, because uh, we like to have fun here, we did look at how um, the Marlon Bundo's Day in the Life of the Vice Presidents did. And since you already cheated, I suspect uh, <laughs> you know what that number is. It was 8,630. Uh, so um, despite uh, some lavish uh, coverage of... Uh, of the Oliver book, the the book uh, that was published by Regnery mm-hmm. did a little better. All right, uh, and and now will that continue into the future? I don't know. I had been talking as it happened uh, last week with Marjorie Ross, who was is the president and publisher of Regnery, and she had, she had a kind of a cute quote and. Regnery, as I think most people know, publishes conservative type books, right. and they have some relatively controversial books coming up mm. <laughs> this year. And, but she said, I thought this would be the least controversial book we did all year. It was about a rabbit. <laughs> um, so, so you never know. And she was not, you know, really unhappy with uh, the coverage at Oliver because they did mention the book. And, yeah. uh, and as we can see, it did sell. It uh, sold well. Know, 8,000 uh, 8, yeah. copies. Yeah. So, um, but one of the other things that it brought out, and we'll probably do a story about this uh, sometime later this spring, um, a lot of the independents who you know we talked to said they felt uh, the way the, the rollout uh, was handled points to you know some real systemic issues with um, with the with the way the publishers distribute to, to different channels, mm-hmm. and 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 you know they were took real umbrage at the fact that look we can keep a secret we as we said they sign all these they right. work with embargo books all the time um, they think that you know some of the some of the bigger houses even though independents are you know gaining respect every day because of their their growth but they still. You know, sometimes when, you know, on big issues like this, they're kind of taken for granted. Right. Yeah. So, and a lot of them are also a little hurt because the Chronicle has generally been uh, a good a good f- supplier for them. So, it got some soul searching among, um, among independents about, you know, what can we do to get our message across to, um, to publishers about how important we are and mm. how, you know, we need to be kept in the loop. And, you know, and that's something that Warren Tyke, who's the head of the ABA, has mentioned that one reason the ABA store count has grown is because publishers are actually working closer with them. So I think they were a little taken aback by this happy rabbit book. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll see how those numbers do once the bookstores are able to have it in stock. Yes. Next time, I'm not going to let you cheat. With with that percentage. (laughs) That that percentage of inventory. Yeah, that is. Right, uh, right. I'm sure Ragnarok's going to have less returns. Uh, Well, well, I bet Ragnarok will have less returns. Uh, That's kind of a scary number, 400,000. Yeah. Um, Yeah, that really is. So, well, you know, let's hope for all concern that right. uh, it works out. 
Yeah. If nothing else, they can uh, send them back out again in November for very belated Christmas presents. Right. Hey, you never know. Always a merchandising opportunity. <laughs> That's right. So uh, we were talking about other numbers, which Mark and I haven't peeked at yet. This is, this is <laughs> this... going to be news to us. Um, tell us uh, what what the what the news is from Random House and others. All right. Well, this is the end of the first quarter, and uh, we always kind of go back and take a look at how the major publishers did, because as Rose just alluded to. Uh, Penguin Random House's parent company, Bertelsmann, released their uh, their year-end results uh, Tuesday. And it didn't show too many surprises. Um, what it did show was that uh, Penguin Random House is really big. Um, <laughs> and, <Yes. laughs> and that their sales went down by 0.1% last year. In other words, virtually flat. Mm. Um, and so in terms of euros, the number is like about 3.3 billion euros. Translate that to dollars, it's roughly $2 billion. And without making it all too complicated, Penguin Random House in the U.S.'s sales were, were about $2.4 billion mm. uh, using current exchange rates. Okay. Uh, I'm not exactly sure, yeah, yeah. sure how Bertelsmann figures in the exchange rate, but um, that that's the number for now. Was that what was expected? Uh... It was sort of what was expected. You know, ex, you know, exchange rates kind of get in right. there and right. kind of can screw with things. And they made an acquisition last year. They bought a Spanish-language publisher, right. so that had a little bit of stuff. Um, you know, and, and what they said and what most of the, 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 most of the four other publishers said was that you know, print sales were generally pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, ebook sales were down, and but probably not at the rate that they had been going down the last few years, and that downloadable audio sales were way up. Um, okay. So that's, that's, I think that's things that, as we uh, went back and looked at what some of the other publishers had said, were kind of in uh, in line with with what everybody else was reporting. But one thing that was interesting. I'm not exactly sure what it means, is the three biggest publishers, and among the three biggest publishers in the world, their sales rate was slower than uh, Simon & Schuster and Houghton Mifflin, who were the other ones on here and are a little bit smaller. Um, so we talked about Penguin Random going down slight, very slightly. Harper, Collins... Uh, went down 0.3%. Mm. So again, not really... Right. Um, it's practically within the margin uh, um, of error. Yeah. <laughs> a rounding error in some people. And Lagardere Publishing, which owns in the United States, Hachette Book Group, their sales went up 1.1%. So what I think you're seeing there, and even though Lagardere and um, Penguin have you know extensive overseas holdings, as well as Harper, you know, it's a flat market. Right. So what you're you're really fighting for, you know, really is market share. Um, you know, the industry numbers for 2017 haven't come out yet here, but by every indication, if there's any growth, it's going to be, you know, as Rose more or less said in the in the margin of error, right. up probably up less than one percent or down one percent. So it, it makes it tough, and, you know. And I think we've talked about this before. Publishers have done a generally good job. Um, Keeping their earnings solid, and, and and again they are. But you know, HarperCollins, uh, their operating margin did go down a little bit, but it's still twelve point five percent, which is pretty good. Houghton Mifflin, which had lost money in uh, twenty sixteen, they had, they earned uh, almost two million dollars last year. Lagardere, their operating margin held even at nine point two percent. 
you know, Penguin, uh, Penguin Random, uh, even though earnings went down as well, uh, their margin was 15.5%. And Simon & Schuster, which really did a, the best among the five we looked at, uh, even though Houghton's sales game was a little bit better. You know, their sales went up 8%. Earnings went up ten point nine, and their margin is almost sixteen percent. Mm-hmm. So those, those are right. those are some good numbers, and you know, kind of put a, a, an exclamation point on how well audio is doing in their ten K report. CBS, which owns Simon and Schuster, uh, pointed out that uh, audio at Simon and Schuster rose thirty nine percent last year. Wow! So that's uh, that's an impressive number, and wow. it helped offset. Uh, the decline in ebook, so that um, amazing. I was going to say, it sounds like people are, are yeah. have decided that they would just rather listen to their fiction or to their books than um, than read them even in digital format. And I I would I think of ebooks as being the the more portable format, the one that you kind of take with you. But maybe audiobooks are now the one that you take with you for your commute or right, right. Uh, well, I, you know, and yeah. I think obviously you can do a lot of other things. While you're listening to the audio, right? We've all we've to, all got a multitask, right? Everybody's got a multitask. You know, you got your commute in, and actually, I was uh, giving a lecture to some Chinese publishers last week, and they had asked, "Well, are the publishers worried that audio will be um, eating into print sales?" Because that that was obviously the fear, which turned to be true, <laughs> that ebooks would do. Right. Uh, but audio, there was really not that fear, because as we just mentioned, I mean. You listen to audio in the car. Yeah. You listen to it maybe when you're doing the dishes mm-hmm. or working out or right. something like that. So, you know, it's, you know, it's really a boom area and there's no signs that it's uh, slowing down. All right. Well, well great, good. Jim. Thank you very much for coming in and giving us the rundown on all this stuff. My pleasure. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're on spring break next week, but we'll have two great interviews from the PW Radio archives for you to enjoy. When we get back, we'll have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash radio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 